Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. Thanks for listening to the best Houston sports podcast. And in this one, we'll look at the Astros at the All-Star break, potential Astros pitching trade targets, the NBA finals, and the passing of a couple of Houston sports figures. As always, I'm joined by my co-host and regular sidekick, a fellow H-Town sports junkie and veteran journalist, Stephen Kerr. And Stephen, in honor of the Astros, I'll be doing this entire show shirtless. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you just love it, Robert? I mean, this this whole interplay with the Astros-Yankees the entire weekend, you know, first of all, you have the Astros holding a, a trophy replicate thing Friday night, a ring replicate Saturday. You you, you don't think it was a uh, coincidence that just because the Yankees were in town. Surely it was, right? Uh, and then you have Jose Altuve going shirtless on Sunday. I'm sure that was in response to Aaron Judge's little gesture you know, when he hit his home run over the weekend. So, yeah, lots of drama with the Astros and Yankees in that series that, you know, had nothing necessarily to do with uh, swinging at pitches and, and throwing pitches. Yeah, I got messages from my friends who were Cardinals fans saying they really enjoyed watching the Astros ser- series and the Astros playing the Yankees as Cardinals fans. A lot of drama, a lot of storylines. And was there a more fun, Stephen, and satisfying regular season win over the last decade than Sunday? Probably not. And, and what's funny about that, Robert, is, you know, the, the Astros lost two out of those three games. I mean, you'd think that they had swept the series or won the World Series when the, <laughs> that whole thing came about when they were down 7-2 to two in the ninth inning, and then they set it up. And I know this this sounds, you know, like nobody would believe me, but I just remember, you know, when the head – Runners on first and third, and Jose comes to bat. The first thing I say is, well, you know, Jose, why don't you go ahead and hit a three-run homer and just end this thing, you know, like you did in 2019. And I'm not I'm not kidding. The next pitch, he does it. Uh, but I bet a lot of people were probably thinking the same thing. Were you, Robert? Well, I, I don't know if I was, but I remember listening to the audio of the Astros' voices and they a specific, I guess it was Steve Sparks said, what if Altuve hits a home run right here? So he, he was yeah. thinking in the same terms you were, he's kind of to the Yankees what Albert Pujols is to the Astros. I looked at, I looked at this, Stephen, his career regular season OPS against the Yankees, only 783. But boy, we know the huge homers that he's had over his career and his postseason OPS and 60 at bat. So this is game on the line stuff. And and that's what I'm talking about is in the high nine hundreds. Remember he was the MVP of one of the Yankees series in the last four seasons that the Astros have played him in the playoffs. And you know what he did at the end of that series. So yeah, just, just incredible. And then don't forget, you know, earlier this season in Yankee stadium, you know, the Astros lost two out of three there, but you know, in the one game, it was on his birthday that he hits a home run. So yeah, we, we could call him a Yankee killer. It'd be perfectly okay with me, Robert. Oh, and the, the other thing, and it's, I, I think I should also take some credit. Uh, in the seventh inning of that Sunday game, I, I tweeted that the Astros looked as if they were already starting to think about the All-Star break during this entire series. I, I'm sure that somebody must have, I mean, it took them until the ninth inning, but somebody must have notified them of that tweet uh, because, you know, then in the ninth, that's when they get the runners on and score all those runs, and Jose does his thing. So I'm, I'm okay with taking at least a little bit of credit for that. Yeah, I, I, I don't know if there was more a more satisfying win, like I said, than there was on Sunday. It was, frankly, 
maybe better than sweeping the Yankees in that you made them think that they were going to sweep the Astros and then just, yeah. you know, pulled the sweep out of the jaws of uh, <laughs> their their mouth at the last second. And then Saturday, I, I do have to mention the Saturday game because that was incredible what Garrett Cole did. But a couple things really got me depressed, Stephen. Number one, Garrett Cole showed us what it would look like over those last two innings when he put a lot of strain on his arm but needed outs in a big game, <coughs> A.J. Hinch. Um, yeah. Just a gut punch to the stomach, considering that's what we could have had from him the last time he was in Minute Maid Park, the very last game he was at Minute Maid Park. And then also, number two, he showed Zach Granke what he should have done with A.J. Hinch when Hinch tried to take him out of the game in Game 7 of the World Series. Yeah, I think there were some F words included in there. It's like, I'm not coming out of this game. I mean, there's no doubt. I mean, here's the thing. In, in this game, Cole was still throwing 99 miles an hour, you know, even at pitch 130. He was he was just bringing it. I, I, I'm surprised, you know, that Aaron Boone even came out of the dugout. I think, you know, if you know your staff and you're standing there watching him and and seeing his velocity be what it is, you know, at pitch 125 and 126 and 127, 128, 129, and 130. I, I don't know why you even come out of the dugout. He's your ace. Let your ace do his thing. Uh, and so, uh, obviously, when Aaron Boone came out, uh, he left empty-handed because <laughs> there was no way Garrett Cole was coming out of that game. Yeah, everybody was just, oh, my goodness. He he threw 129 pitches, and his last pitch was 99 miles per hour. And then I thought, well— is Nolan Ryan just doubled over in laughter at everybody on this one? Because on June 14th, 1974, if anybody doesn't know this story, Nolan threw 235 pitches and struck out 19 over 13 innings. He made his next start on three days rest. He threw 26 complete games that year. Yeah, there's there's just no way you're ever going to see that today. And, and I think, honestly, Robert, and I've, I've talked about this some, and of course I cover youth sports and, uh, you know, just have, have done some things as far as how the game has changed so much over the years, especially when in regard to pitching and all the arm problems that pitchers have nowadays, even in, the, you know, at the youth level. So, you know, obviously goes into college and professional baseball. Yeah, it, I mean, there was a different conditioning back then, I think, that was probably healthier than what we see today. But yeah, Garrett Cole, it was disappointing and, and exciting to watch at the same time what he was doing. Yeah, we can talk about the Garrett Cole game on Saturday, but another thing that uh, I wasn't extremely happy about, and I'm getting, getting a little concerned about, I should say, is, is Robert Valdez. Stephen, he's had two straight bad outings, walked 13 in his last three games. This looks like the Framber Valdez that we used to see back maybe two years ago. Yeah, I'm getting concerned about that too, Robert. And I mean, I'm, I'm hoping that it's not some hidden injury type thing that's cropping up that we just don't know about yet, that, you know, maybe it's something mental that he can straighten out. But this is what you always fear with somebody like Framber Valdez is, you know, what, what Framber Valdez is he going to be? Is he going to be the one we saw last year? Is he going to? Is he reverting back to the Framber Valdez that frustrated us so much? His, it's like his command has totally left him, Robert, because he's not normally a pitcher that's going to to walk many batters at all. But certainly in that game, and even the game before, just way too many walks. Of course, you know, um, 
the last game, just about every Astro that went out there pitching was walking. I mean, 14 walks. How are you going to – my goodness, how you can't possibly win a game when you walk 14 batters, but somehow, you know, they, they managed to do that. But, yeah, Fromber is definitely a bit of a concern, and maybe the All-Star break is what he needs to kind of reset him a bit. He's got four days over the All-Star break to contact that psychiatrist that helped him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, bring him back. If you, if you haven't seen him in a few weeks, Fromber, yeah, uh, get, get back in that session during the All-Star break, certainly. All right. Well, that's the main thing from this past week. Of course, lost in the shuffle, two out of three over the A's. So that was good. You're you're got You're going to have to beat the division rival. But also, we're talking on Tuesday morning. So All Star Game, Correa, Presley, Altuve, and Brantley named All Stars. As I'm sure everybody knows, all of them opted out. Correa and Presley said they wanted to be with their pregnant wives. Although Correa now has COVID, so he wouldn't have likely been playing anyway. Unfortunately, a lot more serious excuse, but uh, Altuve and Brantley said they wanted to nurse injury issues, although last we heard Sunday, Altuve was rushing to the hospital to see his dad. So, I mean, a, co- a couple of those guys wouldn't have been there anyway, but it, it seemed like a statement, Stephen. What, what did you make of what the Astros said and did over the weekend there? Well, I, I guess it, you know, when you look at the, all the reasons that were there, you, it's hard to blame them, but it's it's kind of interesting that other things suddenly jumped up and got in the way that had nothing to do with their reasoning. So, yeah, it, it kind of makes you wonder. I mean, there are six exceptions, really, uh, according to the agreement, you know, the CBA with MLB and the Players Association of you know, getting out of the All-Star game, but it just seems that it's happening more and more every year. Um, I think it's a shame, though, that I, I I thought for sure that they were going to at least have one Astro replace someone in the All-Star game. So, you know, the fact is that it, it just seems to be happening more and more every year. And in my mind, Robert, the All-Star game just doesn't it, – it doesn't have the same kind of excitement for these players, you know, as it used to, you know, the same kind of meaning. And I think it's even that way for the fans as well. I just don't feel like people are buying into it on both sides as much as they used to. I'm going to ask you this. Uh, when was the last time you were excited or you cared about the All-Star game? How far back do you got to go? You know, honestly, the All-Star game is probably the one game out of all the major sports. You know, you're talking about the Pro Bowl and the NFL, the NBA All-Star game. I watch the uh, Major League Baseball All-Star game almost every year. I mean, do I get, like, really excited about it a lot as, as much as I used to? Now, probably not. And, you know, this year I'm certainly not as excited, <laughs> but that's the one, you know, that's the one game. I don't know what it is. You know, maybe it's my own tradition that I tend to watch more than the others. I buy into it. But, yeah, collectively, I, I just don't feel the buzz. I don't I don't feel like the, the players, you know, they get elected and it's almost like, it, you know, it, whether it's because they're making too much money or they just don't have the same frame of mind about it. I just don't feel like it means as much to them as it used to. And then there's the fans, too, the same thing. Yeah, you got to go back to probably the early 90s, maybe with Bo Jackson that I really cared about. And I think a lot of it might have to do it's a it's a, it's a kids thing. I think kids are going to be more excited about seeing all these guys together than adults. But also, I, I just feel like um, you, you mentioned it. I mean, with all of these all-star games and Pro Bowls and everything, it, it's it's money. You don't get excited if you're a player unless there's money involved as much. And, you know, one, things I, one of the things I was thinking about, Stephen, is we're learning so much about injuries and uh, the load that it takes on a player. And baseball, they need to take 
a little out of what the NBA is doing, and and you've got to give it more time for an All Star break. You got to give a longer stretch so the guys that do want to rest feel like maybe they get can get some rest and do the All Star game. So whether that's a week or maybe even longer, I think that's what you got to do, which probably means you've got to not have as many games in a season. And of course the owners are going to get all, they're going to get all pissy about that. But if you, if you want your all-star game to matter, if you want that to be a celebration and people to care, because before long, most of these guys aren't going to do it. We're going to see more and more people opting out the way they opt out of the NFL pro bowl game. And I, I just see this, this not changing. It's, it's a slippery slope. It's like guys opting out of, their last year in college, we're seeing this happen throughout sports where you've got to take care of yourself. That's the most important thing. Yeah, and unfortunately for purists like me and and I guess you, Robert, it, it's not a good trend because, uh, you know, you think about it. I mean, these all-star games were – they were put there for a reason. You know, I think at one time, way back, you know, decades ago, they had not one but two all-star games at one point. They, they don't anymore, of course, but – it's a tradition, and, and a lot of us like to see that tradition continue. But, yeah, unfortunately, Robert, I, I, I like your theory, but I don't think I don't think it's something Major League Baseball would go for is a longer break, especially, I mean, you know, if you're going to cut into the amount of games that are being played, I don't think you're going to talk the owners into that. I mean, they're already adding, you know, over the years, they've added more playoff games. It's already 162 games. So, yeah, that'd be the only way to make it work is that if you're going to give more, like, say, a week, for instance – for the all-star break, you got to cut into some of the games. And I, I just don't see that happening, but something really, something needs to be done. I and mean, if you're going to have an all-star game, do it right, you know, do it all the way. Or in my mind, don't do it at all. Just get rid of it. That's how I feel about the pro bowl. You know, the NBA all-star game, I think has still have some show, you know, some wow factor there. They, they've tried to do some things with it. And I know with the major league baseball, all-star game, the home run derby, I, I do like watching that. That's pretty interesting, but it really takes a lot out of the players to to participate in that. So I just think once again, it's an MLB leadership issue that they're just, it, they're not making it much of a priority in making the fans continue to be in tune with it as well as getting the players to play. So I think it's just, it's one of those things though, though that they really need to solve or just get rid of it altogether in my mind. You're not going to get major league baseball to make players show up if they say I'm hurt or this is going on or that's going on. I mean, you can't take a handcuff and drag them there if they don't want to. No, you can't. No, you can't. And then and, and there's, like I said, there's six different reasons. I, I can't remember them all, but obviously injury is one. Uh, paternity leave is another. And, you know, there's several others. But and, and of course, you have to show some proof for it. But that that's pretty easily done, too. You can come up with all that if you need to. So, yeah, I think that's really the biggest hurdle they face. You know, as jaded as we sometimes can be about the All-Star game these days, one reason to watch tonight's game, Shohei Otani leads baseball with 33 home runs. He's the starting pitcher. It's just unreal. You know, Stephen, with a better marketing team, he should be everywhere like Bo Jackson was. Yeah, absolutely. And not only is he going to be the starter in the game, he's also going to be the leadoff hitter. I mean, imagine that. You know, that's no matter what team he plays for, it's an incredible run that Shohei Otani is is going into. Now, I must admit, I mean, I've been pretty skeptical about him when he first came in. The fact that he was going to try to be a two-way player and do that the way Babe Ruth did it. You know, even Ruth decided he'd had enough of that. But, you know, at least this year, certainly, uh, Shohei Otani 
he's the guy. You know, he's he's the face of the game at this moment. Uh, you know, even Mike Trout, I, I think, as much as he is the face of baseball, but if Shohei Otani continues what he's doing, he is by far going to be the face of baseball. There's, there's no doubt about that. Do you feel like you could get more out of the Shohei Otani experience for baseball if he was an American guy? Because it just seems like it's hard to promote Shohei Otani maybe because he is Japanese. And I don't know. It just seems like something is lost in translation. Or is this more of a baseball issue where they don't know how to promote anybody these days? Because, you know, we see the NBA. It seems like they're better at promoting the guys that come over from Europe, but you know, here's a Japanese player that is basically one of the best, if not the best story we've seen in baseball in probably 30 years. I don't know. Well, I don't know if it's so much that, cause you know, when Ichiro Suzuki came in, I mean, he took, he took the league by storm when he came in and I, I you know, he certainly developed a name for himself. So I'm not so sure. I, I mean, I think a lot of it and, and the same with, of course, Mike Trout hasn't had to, fight this battle so much but you know maybe you could factor that in with Otani but the fact that he plays for the Angels you know you keep waiting for them to to really wow people and become a a dynasty or at least you know a team that consistently does you know what you might expect so that might have a lot to do with it I think is I mean imagine if if Shohei Otani were playing for the for the Yankees or the Dodgers or you know a team like that that you wouldn't be able to stop talking about him but the fact that he's with the Angels I, I think that that may have something to do with it too. Yeah. I don't know if it's the fact that he's, I guess you would say he's with the Clippers of, of uh, major league yeah. baseball, but I, I, I don't really feel like even with Ichiro, the, the, it wasn't everywhere on ads and stuff like that. That's what I'm talking about. I, he should be on Nike commercials and be doing, you know, all these different, there, there should be, an, an influx where I see Otani everywhere. And, and I just wonder, what's that about? And wh where do I lie the blame? Is is, it a, is that a Major League Baseball? I just feel like Major League Baseball, they don't know what to do with their stars. Whereas the NBA, maybe it's easier to be the star league because, you know, you see the guys face so much during the game and stuff like that. And, you know, you've got the baseball cap, I guess, a little bit with guys in baseball. I, I don't know. I just can't figure this out. Well, I think if you're talking about it from a marketing standpoint, I think it's, it's no secret MLB does not know how to market their players the way the NBA does. The NBA has always been a, a, a player's league in a sense of, you know, they don't market teams so much, especially now. You know, they're, they're marketing players. And, and MLB, there's just so many things MLB has not figured out. And, and I think it's obviously one of the reasons baseball is lagging so far behind, you know, in, in – Fan excitement is that I just don't think they have a grip on the market and, and how to market their players and their teams. It, I just think it all goes back to the leadership and why, you know, even the NBA and, and certainly the NFL, you know, you can take pot shots at, at things with what the NFL does, but they're number one for a reason is they know how to get it done. All right, let's get back to the Astros because uh, you've got a segment you want to start up and we're going to do that in just a bit, but I do want to hit on some of the relievers on the trade market because we got to start looking at this really seriously, really fast because we're almost two weeks away from the end of July, which is the trade deadline. And you can't make a trade once July ends with the new rules because baseball ditched the August 31st deadline. So teams have to make decisions earlier. We're going to see what that does to the market 
uh, Stephen, I'm going to give you four guys. And when I'm done, you can tell me who do you think might be most likely to be an Astro from the group that I'm, I'm going to give you. And if you have anybody that I haven't mentioned, and I'll break them down for you a little bit. And number one is Washington Nationals reliever Daniel Hudson, who's got a .873 whip. He's a free agent at the end of this year at age 34, so I can't imagine he'd be that costly. That's somebody that uh, you're going to have to keep an eye on if the Nationals decide that for sure they're going to sell and they are saying otherwise right now, but we'll see if things change here. Uh, like I said, you got to make decisions earlier than normal. The Pirates aren't going anywhere, so Richard Rodriguez is 31 years old. You would have to think he's going somewhere. He's got a .764 whip. Uh, incredible. You'd have two more years of arbitration before he becomes a free agent. That's somebody you have to keep an eye on. And of course, everybody's talking about Craig Kimbrell from the Cubs, uh, 33 years old, 0.663 whip. Uh, he's having a comeback year. You'd be picking up 60 million in money for him next year. Although remember the Astros losing Verlander and Granky big money off the books. So keep him in mind because that's uh, that's the name everybody's talking about. Now, the last guy, a little bit more under the radar, the Twins, Taylor Rogers, 1.115 whip, 30 years old, one year of arbitration left after this year. It seems like he'd be kind of a value in the same way that I think maybe uh, Daniel Hudson could be a little bit of a value. Those, those two guys would be the cheapest as far as trade commodity, but... Uh, any of those four do you think ends up being an Astro the most likely? And is there anybody that I'm missing? Well, I, you know, I think Richard Rodriguez and, and the fact that, that he does have a little bit longer, you know, stint, he's not going to be a free agent. I mean, I guess a lot of it just depends if you're if you're trying to, you know, stitch up the bleeding right now, then really any of those other guys, you know, even though they're, they're going to walk. I'm not so sure about Craig Kimbrell. I, I don't know that they would be targeting him necessarily. You know, you, you've certainly got Ryan Presley as your closer. He's certainly do. But if there's anything the Astros do need, it's a setup guy and, you know, maybe something in that role. But I kind of like Richard Rodriguez. I, I think he might be the one that not only with the stats per se, the numbers, but you'd have him a little bit more for the longer term than some of the others you mentioned. But it, it'd be hard not to pass any of those up. And again, it's going to depend. You know, the Astros farm system isn't exactly ripe with talent anymore so you have to kind of take a look at what are they going to be willing to give up for any of those guys and the one thing with Rodriguez uh, from what I understand not really a power arm you know a, a guy that's going to blow you away so does, is that going to matter once you get into a playoff situation where this is the most important part of the equation of this whole deal is that I mean I think the Astros could get to the playoffs win their division without a reliever but you need him for that and you know is, is that going to matter that he's not a super big power arm. Kimbrell, I guess, would be the bigger power arm of this entire group, right? If you're talking about power pitchers, he would be, but but he has also uh, tended to falter in the postseason. So, yeah, that that would I think that would be one reason I'd shy away from him a bit too. So, yeah, it's intriguing. All the names I, I think are certainly realistic. I, I could see maybe one of those four, and then there may be some under the radar that even you and I aren't catching, Robert. But it's clear. The Astros have got to make some moves during this. And, you know, again, with some of the start, you know, you've got Urquidy. You don't know what, what's going to happen with him. You know, Grinky has, has even complained a bit about some shoulder problems that he's had. I mean, I'm I'm not, you know, completely sold on the fact that the Astros might not even try to make a move to get another starter just because of there's just so much uncertainty around this pitching 
But it's clearly more in the bullpen that the, the concern is facing with the ineffectiveness and, and even all the injuries. And then you also have to factor in, you've got, uh, you know, Austin Pruitt. I mean, his days on the clock are coming up, so you got to figure out what you're going to do with him and then some of these other guys trying to come back from injuries. So, boy, there's a lot. I, I just I, I don't envy James Click right now with the decisions he's going to have to make with all those factors. Yeah, I don't see another starter. they got seven guys, seven starters. If three of them are hurt, you still have four guys to go into the playoffs with. I just don't see that. I mean, Christian Javier, uh, if he goes back to be a starter, I'm super confident. If you look at Christian Javier's numbers, they're as good as anybody on this staff. Uh, he's got a whip that's right there near the top. And even when he's struggled a little bit with walks or whatever, it's it's still hard to hit him. And, and he's overall, he's still been really good as far as his whip and his control uh, when you look at the entire season. So we'll see. What what, what about your uh, new segment, Stephen? Let's get, get to that because I'm excited about that. Yeah, I am too, Robert, because I, and I've been thinking about this for a little while. And I, just because I have followed the Astros for so long, I just when it, when it comes to the history of a team, you know, obviously the Rockets have a lot of history, you know, the, the Oilers used to until, <laughs> until they left town. And that's where I grew up watching. But man, when it comes to Astros history, I have just always been a big baseball history fan, but especially with the Astros. So I wanted to start something new called This Week in Astros History. I know it's not an original name necessarily, but that's what it's about. And I thought it would be a good time to start it today, Robert, on this podcast, simply because with the All-Star Game coming up tonight, as, as we're recording this, it's Tuesday, I wanted to take a look at some, you know, This Week in Astros All-Star History and I have four different things that I came up with that I thought were pretty interesting that we could point out that affected the Astros, you know, things that the Astros did during the All-Star game. And I wanted to start with the year 2006. It was on July 11th when Astros manager Phil Garner, who, of course, used to play for the Pirates as well, returned to Pittsburgh, and he became the first Astro to manage in the All-Star game. Now, of course, you know, Garner and the Astros were defending National League champions the previous season, so he got to manage the 2006 All-Star game. First Astro to manage an All-Star game. I'd say that's pretty cool. In 2004, Minute Maid Park, they were host to the MLB All-Star Futures game, and the U.S. team won 4-3 over the world team. Now, what's significant about that is Astros in that game, Willie Tavares, you remember him? He was for the world team. And Chris Burke, how could we forget that big home run he hit in 2005 against the Braves in the playoffs? He played for the U.S. team. So uh, some Astros even contributed to the Futures game that year. Now, if we go back to 1994, the strike-shortened season on July 12th, the Astros sent a team record five reps to the All-Star game. Of course, you know, all these, at least three of the names you wouldn't be surprised about. Craig uh, Biggio, Jeff Bagwell, and Ken Caminiti, they represented the team. A uh, couple of names, maybe not surprises, but ones you may have forgotten about. John Drabeck, uh, Doug Drabeck, I'm sorry, Doug Drabeck and John Hudek. They also went to Pittsburgh for the game that year. And then my uh, last one, Robert, is July 11th, 1967. The late Jimmy Wynn became the first Astro to get a hit in the All-Star game. He singled in the ninth inning. So 
There you have it. The Astros have definitely made some uh, pretty good contributions in the All-Star game over the years. Yeah, Doug Drayback, uh, I, I just didn't remember that he had made an All-Star game with the Astros because I just remember that contract being a disaster. It just didn't work out. I didn't out. either. Yeah, that's, I didn't, I, I, when I looked at that, I thought, wow, Doug Drayback made the All-Star team that year. Yeah, that is kind of interesting to, to note. Yeah, good for John Hudak. At least he, he got to an All-Star game. Not, not one of the huge Astros <laughs> names in history, but, uh, you know, I... I think in terms, I guess, more of there, there hasn't been these big moments in, in all-star games for the Astros, but uh, it's been fun when the games have been in Houston and I was at the last one that was in Houston, the one at Minute made back. I want to say it was, what was it? 2004. Was that, is that about yeah, right? Yeah. 2000, yeah. 2004. Yeah. That was really cool because I just remember Muhammad Ali came out on the field before the game and I actually went. Before the game, uh, I, the day before, I went out to uh, Minute Maid and stood outside of the stadium and was waiting for home runs from the home run derby. And there were balls flying over the fence and Berkman was hitting him. And, you know, it, it, the problem was if I got into the scrum, Stephen, I wouldn't be talking to you today, today because I would have gotten killed. <laughs> yeah, suffice it to say, Robert, I don't think you would have held up very well in that, in that little skirmish. Um, there, there is another note I wanted to mention. It, it has nothing to do with the All-Star game, but it happened in 1985 on July 11th. Nolan Ryan struck out his 4,000th batter. So that's uh, certainly of, of note. But yeah, All-Star games, I mean, uh, you know, maybe the Astros haven't had an MVP or anything like that. But it's it's always exciting because you just never know. I guess that's, you know, it's one of the reasons it's so disappointing that they're not going to have anybody in there this year. So uh, but I just uh, some great history with the Astros and the All-Star game. I guess that's one of the things that keeps me watching from year to year. It's just the excitement that that could take place. My favorite memory recently was, you know, th they were talking to George Springer during the game. That that was fun. Just talking to George Springer was cool. But they talked to him during the, the game. Do you remember that? They had a mic'd up. Yeah, that's right. They do have a mic up. Yeah. Some of the more recent things you see with the players being mic'd up and uh, yeah, so that's interesting to watch. I know they're you know trying to add some little things, but uh, yeah, I'd forgotten about that. Thanks for reminding me that that was a good memory. Let's get to the NBA playoffs. The Suns up two to one on the Bucks. Giannis back to full on Greek freak. I can't believe he's healthy already after that injury. He's looked uh, great in the series. Chris Paul got the Scott Foster jinx thrown at him in Game Three, which is something that I noticed. He's zero and twelve. In the playoffs with Foster officiating coincidence, I don't know about that. But Stephen, my two big observations going forward in this series, Coach Bud, we talked about him a little bit over the course of the your playoffs. Your favorite, your your favorite. Yeah, yes. I, I have to say though, I got to give him some credit. He's looked much better in this series and in the past series in this playoff run. So maybe this will go to Game Seven because this feels like a home court advantage series right now. This Suns team. They're going to be tough to beat for two reasons. That's this is my second big observation. Number one, they don't miss free throws, and <laughs> they just don't. They're the best free throw shooting team in NBA playoff history right now, and they have home court. And this Suns crowd continues to be insane. It just feels like Stephen. It's it's a home, home, home. Whoever's at home wins wins the games. But I, I just I, that's what I'm feeling after the first few games. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I mean, can you blame those Suns fans? How hungry they are for a championship and just the, the way Phoenix has been down all those years. The, the fans are definitely going to make a difference in that series both ways. Yeah, free throws are big in the postseason, no doubt about that. And 
you know, getting back to Giannis, I mean, he really shouldn't even be playing, should he? As far as just a, you talk about medical miracles, you know, we talked about how Fromber came back for the Astros so quickly after a broken finger. And, you know, here Giannis scoring over 40 points and, and playing the way he did with a knee injury that, quite frankly, I think would keep most players out the rest of the playoffs. So it has been quite incredible. And I think we even said on our last podcast, Robert, that I, th- I think we were both expecting a really good series between these two teams. Uh, game four, it's definitely going to be interesting to see, you know, is the turn going to tide? You know, can the Suns grab the advantage back? Or is it really going to be what you just said, a, a home and home series where it's the home team is probably going to be the one that's going to win it. Yeah, he put the freak in, in, in the Greek freak with his ability to come back from that injury. Devin Booker, man, he's got to shoot better. He's shot 38.3% from the field in the first three games. and I just get a feeling he's going to shoot better as the series goes along. But if, if that doesn't change, maybe the Bucks win this thing. Yeah, and, and I've been concerned because, you know, Devin Booker, throughout most of the postseason, he's been the guy. I mean, he's been the most consistent player. So the fact that he's he's kind of faltered in the NBA Finals, that that's definitely going to hurt the team if he doesn't get that back very quickly. Not sure if anybody caught it, but there were a couple of deaths in the Houston sports world in the last week. We lost a member of Love You Blue, offensive lineman David Carter. Do, do you remember his name from back in the day? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he was uh, basically Carl Mock's backup. Uh, you know, he's an offensive lineman. He, he played center and guard. And, you know, what's funny about that is that I, I had a childhood friend that I grew up with named James Carter, and he had an older brother named David. So, I, you know, I used to tease him about that back then. With you know, so, Oh, your brother's playing for the Oilers, is he? Um, but actually, Carl Mock was a big mentor. You know, Carl Mock, the, the you know, starting center for the Oilers, of course, for those who don't remember. Uh, you know, he... He took David Carter's death pretty hard, apparently, from what I read. Uh, Carl mentored David, even though he was a backup. And he was also uh, the long, and I had forgotten this, Robert, he was also the team's long snapper uh, for a period of time. So, yeah, definitely, uh, I remember the name, and it's it's sad. He was only, I believe, 67 and when he passed away the other day. Yeah, there's been some weathers that have passed away much too young. You said deep snapper, played guard and center. Uh, as you said, he wasn't a starter with the Levy Blue teams, but later on, the next few years, he got a bunch of starts at that time. He was a six-round draft choice out of Western Kentucky in 1977. Uh, the other passing, Alex Gibbs. Now, if you're a Texans fan, you definitely remember Alex Gibbs. He was a Texans assistant coach in 08 and 09. The big thing Gibbs did was get the Texans into that zone-blocking scheme on offense that they had the next few years under Kubiak. And as longtime Texan and NFL fans will remember, he was an innovator in the zone blocking scheme, won two Super Bowls with Elway and the Broncos back in the 90s. And you got to remember this, Matt Schaub threw for 4,800 yards in Gibbs' second season. That was Schaub's best year. And Stephen, I got to credit Gibbs for that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, he's got to take credit for that because it's just the, the least likely of things that would happen. Now, wasn't that the year? I, I want to say that was the year that Matt Schaub played in the Pro Bowl and won the MVP. I, I don't know if that, that, that sounds right, though, but that was quite a year for Schaub. I remember that. So, yeah, Alex Gibbs, he has to take credit for that for sure. Yeah, and there were people that thought Gibbs' zone blocking scheme was it was on the edge of clean. Let's say the cut blocks could be dangerous for some defensive linemen. So there was some griping around the NFL. Uh, Gibbs was uh, 
making enemies of, of Houston teams the way the trash cans did. Yeah, certainly was. Of course, you know, if you go back decades to teams like the Raiders and, and some of the, you know, have the way they played the game uh, back then, it's, it's yeah, um, kind of a borderline in, in this particular instance. But Alex Gibbs, yeah, that, a bit of a surprise. I, um, it, it's, you know, when you start talking about Texans passing away, I mean, that, that's getting into some really recent territory there. Yeah, he was 80 years old, though, hadn't coached, I believe even like seven years or something like that so uh he he he's been retired he'd been around uh, lifer you know in football college pro 27 years i think as an assistant in the nfl uh last note that i have anyway is on novak djokovic and we got to talk about this because he won his 20th major at wimbledon he ties federer and nadal with the all-time record for most tennis majors that's big enough but uh, it's the seventh Grand Slam final he's won after losing the opening set. That's the most by any player, male or female, in tennis history. He's the sixth tennis player to win the first three majors of a calendar year. If he wins the U.S. Open, he becomes just the third man ever to win the calendar Grand Slam. He's also beating Federer and Nadal head-to-head. And, and, and this is the biggest story of them all, Stephen. Against Nadal, he's 30-28. and 28. Uh, Federer, 27-23 and 23 all-time. Uh, this makes him the best player in tennis history, male anyway. Well, yeah. I mean, you talk about – he's the name you never seem to mention because you, you talk about the other two, Nadal and Federer, Nadal and Federer, but Djokovic just keeps coming up. I mean, you have to put him in the conversation, certainly. And, you know, tennis is a grind, and, and there, there are just some guys that even if they get down a set, you, you can't count them out. They just keep coming at you, keep coming at you. He's probably one of the most tenacious players that you'll ever see on the court. Yeah, it's just a, a huge deal. Um, I, tennis gets lost in the shuffle with everything going on. I know there was the Euro Cup. A lot of people were watching that over the weekend. Obviously, the Astros and the Yankees. But, you know, he's right with the, those guys. And I, we're we're nearing the end of the Nadal and Federer. And Djokovic looks like he could go on for another few years. So I, I think when it's all said and done, he's going to have that best of all, all time. And that's saying something because uh, of what we've seen from Federer and Nadal over these last two decades. It's just, it's just been remarkable. Before we go, you, you've got a new writing gig, right? Sounds pretty cool. Yeah. Well, I'm actually going to be doing uh, some writing for some of the, a couple of the uh, winter Olympic sports of team USA, para snowboarding, um, adaptive. It's the Paralympics actually adaptive uh, snowboarding and skiing. And so I, I've done some things for team USA before. So uh, most of you may not know, I, I'm a freelance journalist and so I, I cover a lot of youth sports, but I do some other, you know, things here and there. You, you do what your clients tell you, basically. So, yeah, really excited to uh, do that, um, as well as launching my own new, uh, youth sports newsletter. So keeping busy these days. And, yeah, the para snowboarding and para skiing, uh, that's going to be exciting. You know, they're mainly winter sports, so you may not be thinking about that right now. But uh, there's still, you know, some feature things and things that we can write about even in the next few months. And uh, the Summer Olympics are uh, certainly just around the corner, too. What What is it? Is the Paralympic Summer Games, does, does that usually happen right after the regular Olympics? Yes, they do. It's a month after the regular Olympic, and the same with the Winter Olympics. The, the Paralympics for the Winter Games, which, of course, won't be until 2022, uh, they always happen a month after the Olympics. And, of course, they'll be in the same city, like the Summer Paralympics will be in August in uh, Tokyo, just like the regular uh, Summer Olympics are. 
Yeah, the COVID things is getting a little bit scary in Tokyo, so I'm just hoping that they can pull this thing yeah, off. Yeah, unfortunately, they're not going to have fans there. That that's an unfortunate. But you know, I think as I tweeted the other day, it's what's more important is that uh, the athletes just you know go there and compete, and that they all come home safely. The big deal is Astros start the second half of the season against the White Sox, who they swept the last time. Uh, that's their first series, so that should be fun. We'll be talking about that, I'm sure, a lot next week. Uh, Until next time, have a safe and healthy week, everybody. You're listening to Houston Sports Talk. Don't forget to follow Houston Sports Talk on Facebook and Twitter. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, the Google Podcast app, or the Stitcher app. You can support us by giving us a five-star review on iTunes or by telling your friends about us. Spread the word, everybody. Thanks for listening.